Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. Today we continue our series, The Cold Case Files. And today we're discussing the mysterious poison pills, poison pill murders. But first, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Poddex. Visit poddex.com and save 10% off your order using promo code TCNS. So let's get on with it. The incidents depicted happened 35 years ago. Johnson & Johnson has since introduced safety measures, which has set the industry standard and established the company as a model for safety. On September 29, 1982, seven people in the Chicago area ingested poison tunnel Thirty-one-year-old Mary McFarlane, thirty-five-year-old Paula Prince, twenty-seven-year-old Adam Janus, twenty-five-year-old Stanley Janus, and nineteen-year-old Teresa Janus. The last three were unfortunately all from the same family. Adam Janus collapsed after ingesting extra-strength Tylenol. He was rushed to the hospital where he died. While the family returned home to mourn, both Adam's brothers, Stanley, and Stanley's wife, Teresa, took a Tylenol, resulting in both of their deaths, making it three deaths in the same family on the same day. The fact that all three of the Janus, Janus's has died in the same house would eventually lead to investigators connecting the dots. On the night of the 29th, Cook County investigator Nick Pichos compared the Janus Tylenol bottle to the bottle from another victim named Mary Kelman. Once the detective had both bottles, he noticed that they shared one similarity, a control number MC2880. Deputy Medical Examiner Donahue says he told the detective to smell the bottles, and he remembers that they both smelled like almonds, and cyanide is said to smell like bitter almonds. Exposures to a large dose of cyanide by any method can lead to seizures, cardiac arrest, and respiratory failure. Blood test results would show that the victims had taken a dose that was 100 or even 1,000 times the lethal limit. Deputy Medical Examiner Donahue says he spoke with an attorney for Johnson & Johnson, Tylenol's manufacturer parent company. By the evening of October 1st, after all seven victims had died, authorities were fairly certain that Tylenol had intentionally been poisoned with cyanide. 
by late that night, it was announced that all Tylenol will be pulled from the shelves immediately. McNeil Consumer Products, the subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson that manufactured Tylenol, recalled over 31 million bottles of Tylenol and issued warnings. They also offered to replace recalled bottles with new bottles and put up a $100,000 reward for anybody with information about the person who had done this. These precautions were estimated to have cost the company $100 million. By Tuesday, October 5th, the U.S. Attorney General, as well as the FBI, were on the case, in addition to local authorities. Tyrone Fawner, Illinois State Attorney General, says he believes in the initial stages there were about, there were about 1,200 actual leads. It's estimated that U.S. newspapers ran over 100,000 separate articles about the incident. A nationwide pandemic ensued. People who believed they might have been poisoned overwhelmed hospitals and poison control call centers. CPD actually went through the city giving warnings about Tylenol through loudspeakers. There were a slew of copycat product tampering incidents, according to the FDA about 270 of them just in the month after the Tylenol murders. Some copycats of them also poison pills with things like rat poison and hydrochloric acid. One fact that battled, baffled police initially was that all the victims bought their Tylenol from different stores and that these stores got their Tylenol from different production plants. Labs were set up and capsules began to come through for testing. Over 10 million recalled pills were tested in total 50 capsules were found to connect, contain cyanide across eight bottles. Five of these bottles belonged to the victims. Two of these bottles were sent back in the recall, and chillingly, one bottle was found sitting on a shelf, still unsold. No fingerprints or physical evidence were found. There was no evidence clearly showing the killer's trail in the stores, and surveillance cameras were not as common back then. Investigators explore the possibility of this being a white-collar crime syndicate intent on tanking Johnson & Johnson stock. Investigators explore the possibility of this being a white-collar... Oh, yeah, I already said that. My bad. In fact, Tylenol share the non-prescription pain reliever market plummeted from 35% to 8% after the murders. Investigators also looked into every disgruntled employee who worked or had worked where the tainted Tylenol was made, stored, or sold. Any shoplifters who had been caught at the stores where the poison Tylenol was found were reevaluated. Those who had just been released from prison or psychiatric hospitals around Chicago were interrogated. The police publicized the victims' funerals, hoping the killer would show up. Eventually, the police reached the theory that whoever did this visited the various stores, purchased the Tylenol, planted the potassium cyanide in the capsules, placed those pills back in the bottle, and returned the bottles around September 28th. This would be one day before the first deaths occurred. Their reasoning was that the cyanide would eventually eat through the capsules, so whoever committed the crime would have to do it close to when the capsules were purchased and consumed, and would therefore have to have done it in Chicago. And now let's take a look at our theories. There are a few suspects that police considered. The first suspect is 48-year-old dock worker Roger Arnold. He said some suspicious things about the Tylenol murders at a bar one night. Police actually did question and search his home. 
They turned up several interesting connections. Arnold worked at a jewel warehouse with the father of one of the victims named, named Mary Rayner. Adam Janus, another victim, had purchased his Tylenol from a jewel convenience store, according to the New York Times. The store where Mary bought her fatal pills was actually across the street from where Roger Arnold's wife's psychiatric ward was located. How-to crime manuals were found in Arnold's home. Police also found evidence of chemistry in Arnold's home, such as beakers and other equipment, as well as a bag of powder. Though the powder was tested, and it turned out to be a potassium carbonate, not cyanide. Roger Arnold refused to take a lie detector test, and the police never found enough to prosecute him. In June of 1983, the following year, Arnold shot an innocent man named John Stanisha outside of a bar late one night. Arnold did so under the impression that he had turned Arnold into the police for his suspicious comments at the bar, which he hadn't. He later died, and Arnold was sentenced to 30 years, but got out early on parole. The second suspect was Theodore Kaczynski, a.k.a. the Unabomber. Once a brilliant mathematician, Kaczynski is currently serving life in prison for killing three people and wounding 23 others with bombs sent through the mail. There are some things that match up with the Tylenol killings. Kaczynski is an Illinois native, and his first bomb was found in Chicago, where he lived at the time. As you already know, also seven killings occurred within Illinois. However, one Tylenol death that is not official is the cyanide poisoning via extra-strength Tylenol of J. Adam Mitchell in Sheridan, Wyoming. It occurred a little over two months before the Illinois Tylenol killings. This is noteworthy because Sheridan, Wyoming is a town on the way to Kaczynski's cabin in Montana, where he lived at the time of killings. Kaczynski's victims also had connections to Wood. For example, one of the surviving victims was named Percy Woods, who resided in Lake Forest, Illinois. Another victim was Gilbert Murray, president of the California Forestry Association. Furthermore, his bombs were partially made of wood, and he often used return addresses and pseudonyms involving types of wood in the past. One example was Frederick Benjamin Isaac Wood, with an address of 549 Wood Street in Woodlake, California. This is relevant because two of the three founders of Johnson & Johnson have the middle name Wood. Admittedly, there seems to be a thin connection, but in February 2009, the FBI office in Chicago announced that it would use advancements in forensic technology in a review of all evidence relevant to the town hall killings. The FBI requested a DNA sample from Kaczynski, and Kaczynski said, in his own words, quote, the officer said the FBI was prepared to get a court order to compel me to provide the DNA sample, but wanted to know whether I would provide the sample voluntarily. End quote. Kaczynski wrote that he was willing to provide the sample on one condition, that the courts not allow the U.S. Marshal Service to conduct an auction of Kaczynski's belongings. Here is, this, here is his reason why, even on the assumption that the FBI is entirely honest, partial DNA profiles can throw suspicion on persons who are entirely innocent. Regardless, the auction went forward, is planned, 
and Kaczynski declined to give his DNA voluntarily. The third and final suspect, and prime suspect for the FBI, was tax accountant James Lewis. On Wednesday, October 6th, one week after the first deaths, Johnson & Johnson received a photocopy of a handwritten unsigned letter. On this letter, the FBI found fingerprints of James Lewis. The letter reads, Johnson & Johnson, parent of McNeil Laboratories. Gentlemen, as you can see, it is easy to plant cyanide, both potassium and sodium, into capsules sitting on store shelves. And since the cyanide is inside the gelatin, it is easy to get buyers to swallow the bitter pill. Another beauty is that cyanide operates quickly. It takes so very little, there will be no time to take countermeasures. If you don't mind the publicity of these little capsules, then do nothing. So far, I've spent less than $50, and it takes me less than 10 minutes per bottle. If you want to stop the killing, then wire $1 million to bank account number 84-49-597 at Continental Illinois Bank, Chicago, Illinois. Don't attempt to involve the FBI or local Chicago authorities with this letter. A couple of phone calls by me will undo anything you can possibly do. As mentioned before, Lewis's fingerprints were found on the letter. A warrant for his arrest was issued, and the ensuing manhunt would end on December 13th after Lewis was spotted at a New York Public Library annex. Strangely, the bank account number listed in Lewis's letter did not belong to Lewis, but instead belonged to a man named Frederick Miller McKay, a man who Lewis believed had stiffed his wife Leanne out of $511 and change. Basically, Lewis only included McKay's bank account number in hopes that it would expose the $511 theft and ultimately had nothing to do with the murders and was as petty as it was idiotic. That being said, Lewis's past did leave lead investigators suspect that he could be the Tylenol killer. He allegedly chased his mother with an axe when he was 19. In 1966, he was committed to the Missouri State Mental Hospital after taking 36, I'm probably going to butcher this, Anison pills. There he was diagnosed with catatonic schizophrenia. Later, he tried to explain that both these events were attempts to avoid the Vietnam draft. Later in his life, Lewis was charged and acquitted for the murder of a man named Raymond West, who had been found dismembered in his own home in the summer of 1978. After that, Lewis and his wife launched a short-lived business venture attempting to import pill-making machines made in India. In 1981, Lewis was suspected for falsifying credit card applications using fake addresses and mailboxes. In a search of Lewis's home on December 4, 1981, Police did find plenty of evidence to arrest Lewis for these particular crimes. As a result, Lewis and his wife fled to Chicago, where they lived under assumed names for almost a year, bringing us to the timeline of the Tylenol murders. However, the Lewises bought Amtrak tickets from Chicago to New York City on September 4, 1982, which was 25 days before the Tylenol deaths began. And if you recall, the Tylenol killer... would have to plant the cyanide within close proximity of the consumption date, and 25 days was too long. But some investigators on the original case believed it would have been possible for the perpetrator to fly into Chicago 
O'Hare Airport, rent a car, plant the pro um, poison, and leave Chicago. Surveillance video from one of the drugstores did show a bearded man who some thought looked a lot like Lewis, but there was <clears throat> no positive idea, and nobody could place Lewis in Chicago shortly before the deaths. Ultimately, authorities never have even had enough to prosecute Lewis, let alone convicted of the murders. However, Lewis's letter-writing fiasco did lead him to being convicted of extortion. Lewis was sentenced to 20 years in prison, but served a little less than 13. While in prison, Lewis bizarrely offered his help and explained in Drew in detail how someone might go about injecting the capsules with lethal amounts of cyanide. Lewis was released in 95, and he and his wife now live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. In 2010, Lewis published a book titled Poison, The Doctor's Dilemma. Lewis would insist that the book had nothing to do with the Tylenol murders, and also stated that he regretted sending the police the ransom note. The fictional plot of the book is about death by water poison with lead in southern Missouri. He went on public access television in January 2010 to promote his book. He ended up giving a 48-minute interview in which many of the questions were directed at his role in the 1982 Tylenol murders. Lewis referred everyone to his lawyer and refused to comment further. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cold Case Files. Let us know your thoughts on this case, what you think happened. Do you believe any of these suspects are viable? Uh, you can send us a voice message at 682-305-0483. And number's right there. Uh, you can send us a tweet at TrueCrimeNS. And we'd like to thank once again our sponsors, Poddex. Poddex is a tool you can use to grow your um, podcast Increase your downloads, engage with your audience. Um, they come in decks of cards like this. They, you pick a card and it delivers you a prompt. I recently used What the Heck for an episode and I actually saw a decent bump in downloads. So check them out today, poddex.com. Use promo code TCNS for 10% off your order. Thank you and we'll see you next week.